Yeah, I definitely think I am very much a champion for creators. And even, so it's funny that you say that because even in, in the company, I think I really kind of bucket myself to be more on the creator side. Like I'm all things creators and really strive to constantly figure out and work through like not only, you know, how we're going to get more liquidity and more deals, more of the right deals for the uh, podcasters within our platform, but also like helping them how to pitch themselves and how to ensure that they are getting hired and, and help their chances and, and help them put their best foot forward. Podcast Junkies, episode 273. Welcome back. I'm your host, Harry Duran. Newcomers to the show, welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the one where we speak to interesting podcasters. Some of you may not know this, but I was inspired by that TV show called Inside the Actor Studio way, way back, probably in the 90s or early 2000s. And what I found so fascinating about that show was the ability of James Lipton to get personal with his actor guests and get them to reveal a little bit more about themselves. And that's the goal with this show. In case you missed last week's episode, I had a great conversation with Karina Balitzi. She's the host of Care More, Be Better, a social impact and sustainability podcast. This week, we speak to Agnes Cozera. She's the co-founder of Podcorn. Some of the more veteran podcasters listening may actually have used the service. It's a network for connecting podcasters with advertisers for native sponsorships. Agnes is passionate about building tools that empower and support the growth of brands and content creators across different mediums. And in this episode, we talk about the traits and characteristics that make successful entrepreneurs and how our shared experience as immigrants may contribute to the strong worth ethic that aligns well with entrepreneurship. Agnes talks about her passion for content creation and what inspired her and the team to launch Podcorn. She's definitely had experience and multiple exits as an entrepreneur, and she reflects on that journey from startup to being acquired by Google and the challenges and opportunities that arose from that acquisition. This episode is brought to you by Focusrite and specifically the Scarlett 2i2 sound card, one of my favorite go-to sound cards, something I use for each and every podcast recording. The 3G line is a go-to for all new podcasters. Find out more at podcastjunkies.com forward slash focus right, and the link will be in the show notes as well. Finally, she shares why she identifies herself as a champion for content creators everywhere. It's definitely an inspiring story for creators and entrepreneurs alike. As always, full show notes available at podcastjunkies.com forward slash 273. I realized that there's a review I hadn't read out that had came in several months ago. Looks like the beginning of the year, and it's from Jeremy Enns. Jeremy is a notable voice in the podcasting space, and he was kind enough to send in this review. I've been aware of Harry for a long time, and while I've always admired both the work he does and how he does it, I've only recently started listening to Podcast Junkies. I'm so glad I finally did, as the show is full of gold, even as someone who's been working professionally in the podcast industry for the past five years. Harry's personality and perspective really set this show apart from many of the other similar shows. If you are a podcaster looking to improve and grow your show, do yourself a favor and check it out. I had to read the whole thing, and I'm truly humbled, and I appreciate it anytime someone sends in a review. So thanks, Jeremy. A reminder, if you enjoyed this episode or past episodes, I'd love it if you leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash podcast junkies. I'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. If you're feeling adventurous, check out one of the new podcast apps that support direct podcaster support at newpodcastapps.com. 
I've got a project in the works with Dave Jackson and James Cridland to dive deeper into this world of podcasting and direct compensation via crypto. So stay tuned for that. That's going to be a fun and exciting project. And we'll be using ourselves and our shows as guinea pigs. Make sure you stay to the end of the episode where I reveal this week's retention hashtag. But for now, let's get into this conversation with Agnes and learn more about Podcorn. So Agnes Cozera, SVP and co-head of Podcorn, thank you for joining me on Podcast Junkies. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Do you remember the first podcast you ever listened to? The first podcast I ever listened to? I don't know. I think the first one I ever got hooked on was the one with Jay Shetty. I forget what it's called. Marketing? It's probably a marketing one. No, no. It's kind of like self-help. Okay. Yeah. Self-discovery, like self-betterment. I forget what it's called, but it was. it's definitely his podcast. I'm still a fan of it. I don't remember the name of it, but... We'll track it down. Do you remember who recommended it to you? I think no one. I'm not sure how I even came across. Maybe somewhere I saw it on the on the web. I think I was on a self like help journey. Okay. <laughs> just reading. I love self-help books in general. I think podcasting is really great, especially for for that vertical. There's a lot of great material there. So yeah. I think I just came across it myself by just doing research on the web of like great motivational podcasts. And that's how I came across it. Really great content. What was going on in your life at the time where you were focused on motivation and self-help? Oh, sorry. On purpose. It's called On Purpose. I just found it. it. Yes. (laughs) Sorry. I was like on a hunting mission, just went on to search it. I don't think there's anything. I think just in general, you know, I think going through the startup grind uh, and throwing myself into work, for so many years and just going at it really hard. I just, I wanted to get grounded and just kind of get more in touch with myself. And yeah, and and I find that content just really inspirational and also hearing other people's stories and their journeys is is always really inspiring for me. I noticed uh, we spoke about just before we jumped on that you had an interview with the Squadcast folks, but I think you've been on several podcasts over the past couple of months. So I'm wondering what that experience has been like for you. Yeah, great. I love talking to podcasters. I mean, obviously, Podcorn wouldn't exist without incredible podcasters and the content that they're making. I love personality-driven content. I love interview format content. It's it's very fun. And I love, yeah, I love talking about Podcorn. I love hearing podcasters' perspective. I feel like everyone always bring something new to the conversation. And yeah, just, yeah, it's really great to be in the mix and kind of also eat our own dog food and be and be immersed in the content. I'm curious how far back the entrepreneurial bug goes for you. Yeah, pretty far, pretty unconventional for me. I mean, I was on a journey to law school. I was planning to be a lawyer. I didn't expect to be in entrepreneurship at all. It sort of happened as a side hustle. I had gotten into subscription commerce. I created a side hustle subscription commerce company very early on in the Birchbox days. It was the first subscription commerce company with full-size products for your home, body, and spirit that were eco-friendly. And I wanted to recreate seasons and put them in a box and and have people experience seasons because I really loved seasons living on the East Coast. It's something I want to recreate, but I had no marketing budget. I was a starving student, so I couldn't work with any of the agencies and networks. And so I had 
by coincidence, I mean, I was watching a lot of YouTube. I've always been a fan of YouTube. To me, I always saw as more than cat videos. And so I was inspired and I outreached to a lot of the creators that I was watching, which weren't the big celebrity ones, which were sort of the smaller creators, very niche. And I outreached to them and, and created this little network of creators, a tribe mostly of women at the time, who seemed inspired by my founding story, were excited to share my subscription commerce box. And then one thing led to another. And that was really successful for me as a as a user acquisition channel. And But through the midst of that, I really discovered the problem of how hard it was to not only like find creators when I wanted to scale, but figured out how to manage them, how to price them. And then just managing everything in messy spreadsheets just wasn't really scalable. And so my co-founder at the time, he was doing a completely different startup. He had co-founded in Silicon Valley. And we sort of saw this deeper thing in this. And he was like, well, you know, if you abandon the subscription commerce thing and we build this bigger business that we really believe is timely in this influencer space, I'll join you. And so we did. I dropped out of law school. He dropped his company. And then the rest is sort of history. And it turned out really great because we got acquired by Google with that company. And so everything worked out. And that was uh, FameBit? That was FameBit, yeah. What were you learning along the way? Because the Seasons Box was your first time leading a startup. And like you said, this is the stuff they don't teach you in college. And so I myself can relate because I was in corporate for 20 years and and then started my first podcast in 2014 and then started the agency that we own now. So I'm always curious because there's a lot of things that you don't know <laughs> until you have to like deal with them as an entrepreneur, this concept of like being comfortable with failure and failing fast and failing, just getting up faster and just being, okay, that didn't work and that didn't work. And so what were some of those lessons that you realized you didn't learn, but you sort of had to learn on the job with those early positions? Yeah. I mean, everything. I mean, you know, even with FameBit, I was the first product salesperson. I was the first campaign manager. I learned to do things that don't scale first and really be in touch with the customer, really go out and get the customer, speak to the customer as early as you can, get your product out as early as you can. Your first version is never going to be the best. A lot of the stuff we were doing initially was manual, but it was great because we learned the process. We learned what works and then made the product better that way. I think that was a very important learning. Yeah, I think there, and just building something that people want. You know, there's, I just think there's, no recipe for success. I mean, I don't think it doesn't matter how much hard work you put in. You just have to have that product market fit and and not be afraid to pivot when you don't have it or not be afraid to do something else quickly. So yeah, we've always been very mindful and, and very tuned in to, to our customer. And I think that's what led us to success. But I also think just leaning on past experience, I think not taking no for an answer you know, a lot of the times when we started first with FameBit, a lot of investors didn't see the potential of it. We were starting in the beauty vertical with a lot of beauty creators doing product reviews. And you're like, I don't get it. Isn't YouTube kind of for cat videos? So, but I saw that it moved product for me with my previous startup. So I knew there was potential. So not giving up, not taking no for an answer, which is kind of like counterintuitive to the fact of like fail fast and you have to be a little nutty. I think you have to have <laughs> self-belief more so than everyone else and not get discouraged. But 
you also have to take criticism and you have to be open to it and you have to take feedback and know when to stop. Yeah. So you mentioned a couple of things that I thought are interesting. This idea of being able to take criticism, not saying no, and having some self-belief. Where were these traits ingrained in you? <laughs> when? I'm not sure. I think I've always been very stubborn. I don't maybe know. I your, maybe I should ask your parents that question. <laughs> yeah. No, I yeah, I think I've just always been been very hard-headed and and stubborn and I think I went into the tech space very naive. Like I didn't there wasn't people I looked up within the tech space, you know, before I got into it. I there weren't like investment firms that I looked up to that I was like petrified of. I just went in there with my idea and I think that going into it blindly was also a blessing for me because I wasn't as intimidated by the folks as if, you know, you you kind of like look up to, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to do all these things that whether it's like Jack Dorsey or whoever else has done, you know, and you're going to pursue it. I didn't go into it that way. I just sort of went into it very blindly with my own mission and vision. And I think it's the fact it's that experience. It's having, and I think there's something to be said about building a startup out of your own need or out of your own problem because you have a really unique insight. So I think that's the other thing I learned is that without that, if I didn't have that insight that it does work, it does move product, influencers are very powerful and you don't need the most biggest influencers to move product. It's actually like the niche long and mid-tail ones that worked for me. If I didn't have that insight, I probably would have given up. I probably would have you know, listen to people telling me that it's not going to work. So I think it's building a product out of your own need helps you have that little bit of insight that everyone else doesn't, and it keeps you going. So I think stubbornness comes from experience, so to speak. <laughs> What's your background? Background as in like where I was born? Yeah. Oh, Polish. I'm Polish. I was born in Poland. No, I was wondering, I'm just curious what your thoughts are, because I'm Latino. I was born in El Salvador, and there's a, a different work ethic, not to say that there isn't one here in the States, but I, I wonder how much sometimes of that is cultural when there's more, it's not called entrepreneurship, <laughs> like in other countries, it's just like this drive to want to do more, to improve, to do better. And sometimes I, I, I notice it like in the Latino culture, like what could be perceived as being stubborn is just being persistent and just not taking no for an answer. Yeah, I think there's something about being an immigrant. I mean, I immigrated to Canada when I was like nine and then obviously brought myself to the US when I was as an adult. And I think there's something about being comfortable with being uncomfortable that you have ingrained in you as as an immigrant child is that you learn to live in that discomfort and it doesn't bother you as much and your sense of home is all messed up and it's kind of and I think that kind of helps with the startup grind in a way because you never are really quite comfortable and you have to learn to live in that really weird spot of not knowing what's going to happen, not knowing if you're going to make payroll next month or not knowing if you're going to raise funding or get acquired or completely die or pivot. <laughs> so yeah, I think there's something there. You're right. It's interesting because I wonder if you have a challenge sometimes explaining entrepreneurship to people who are not, who have like a nine to five job and you're just like, well, it's like, you know, you never stop thinking about your business. Like from the, sometimes from the, I, there's mornings I wake up and I'm 
as much as I don't want to think about my company, like I, there's no other choice because at the end of the day, like all the decisions and reside with you. And as you start growing to your point, then you do have people that depend on you. That's another added pressure. And I, it's just surprising that there's as much responsibility as entrepreneurs have that we have to figure out all the, <laughs> like how to do it on our own, which is, it's always been surprising for me. Yeah. I think putting that responsibility on you is a lot of times the driver for making it. I mean, for me, quitting law school, like something that I worked for for so many years and I got there and then I dropped everything, you know, having employees, having people that rely on you, then having investors and wanting to do well for them and and not disappoint them and not disappoint yourself. I think there's that pressure also is, is a driver. I mean, I like to think of it as, you know, jumping out of a plane and then building your parachute on the way down. But that's kind of really what entrepreneurship is. You just figure out, you think outside the box, you try things, you try a lot of things and try again. And yeah. Who were some folks as you were having that journey in your early days who were inspiring you? Honestly, I think it was a lot of my, this is strange, but like a lot of my professors from school that I I became friends with through my master's program and they were really inspirational and in pushing me out of my comfort zone and pushing me out of law school and telling me like, get out, law school will always be here. You have some unique insight or some unique idea, like you need to explore this, not be afraid. Yeah, my mom was definitely like, no, no, like you've worked for this. This is the safe path. Like, what are you doing? You're going to be unemployed. And so I think those were, yeah, it wasn't folks in the industry. It was definitely folks outside of the industry, which is really interesting for me. Has that affected your uh, conversations with other new entrepreneurs that you, that you meet now, people that you can see maybe a younger version of yourself in, in their eyes? Do you think about mentorship? now because of the experience you've had with those folks? Yeah. I mean, I think mentorship, I, I think I'm still constantly learning. I never feel like, you know, like I've made it and I have all the answers. I still feel like with every company there's new challenges or I'm learning new things. And so I'm still living in this discomfort. I think it's this weird thing. Like once you're not in a startup anymore, you forget how painful it is to be in this startup and then you want to do it again. But then when you're in it, you're like, why, what is wrong with me? Why am I here again? But I just, you know, I think when I talk to people who want to explore startups, I really encourage them to have a growth mindset and not whether it's like, you know, you're not sure if you should leave a established career to go pursue a startup. Don't be afraid of that. You know, there are people who, don't have a growth mindset at 18. They feel like they're settled in whatever path they selected. And But there's people who at 55 or 60 have a growth mindset and they start companies or pivot career. So I've just, I've always been a believer in exploring opportunities and not being stuck. And I don't know if that's, again, going back to like the immigrant aspect and the fact that I never feel 100% settled and I'm always searching for growth. So yeah, I think having a growth mindset is a big deal, is a big help. What were you planning to study in law? So completely different than, than entrepreneurship. I was more of a on a social justice, do good for the world. And yeah, it was very different. But it sounds like some of that ethos made its way into the companies 
that you started because of the seasons box and just providing these a collection of these types of offerings for people has some of that like permeated and not necessarily the type of business that you have but just in terms of like how you think about wanting to be a, a good leader or a company that's adding value to the world yeah i definitely think thinking from a place of ethics business ethics has been it's been very useful but also just even from like the way i think about like company policies or you know you know i was like the very first person in the company initially thinking through like like what our terms would be like for creators and how I wanted to make sure we were both like creator friendly and brand friendly and being able to communicate that to lawyers that we worked with. And that's also made me think about the way we structured the business, right? Like knowing the importance of having the right legal folks on the team really early on to make sure that we are buttoned up from every angle. I think that's like a lot of things startups don't think about. Startup founders don't think about. They just think about like, oh, we're going to grow and then we'll clean up later. That's not how you get acquired, right? If there's like a mess under the hood, that will be a problem. So I think having that background has also helped me think about it really structurally. And I've always come at everything from a problem lens, not a solution lens, which is really interesting, but I'm always thinking about what can go wrong. And that's helped me. And I think that's more of the legal background. Yeah. I was going to ask if some of your training as a lawyer has made its way into like how you think through problems and how you tackle some of these. Yeah. I mean, well, I never finished law school, so I can't say, but because I dropped out, but definitely just, yeah, having that problem first mindset, thinking about anything and everything that can fall apart and trying to get in front of it. And also just yeah, understanding things from a legal perspective, being able to speak the language of the folks on the legal side and has been very helpful. What are some of the mistakes for, for the people that are listening? There's, you know, there's, there's some folks that are entrepreneurs as well. When you think about cleaning up your business or having your business in, in a position where it's attractive to investors or that they see that you really got your act together, what are some of the, the common things that new entrepreneurs can, can be thinking about as they grow? Yeah, I mean, you know, make sure you have the right terms of service. Make sure, you know, that you're properly buttoned up to be doing business in the countries where you're doing business. Make sure you have all your employment contracts and that you keep those. Those are things some, you know, founders don't think about and they get lost and things can get very messy. So it's, or just being, you know, buttoned up from an accounting perspective is very important as well. So yeah, just bringing on the experts early that will help even like get your business set up properly from the get-go. It's really important. I don't, I'm not a proponent of like build the company and then figure it out. It's line your ducks up in a row right away and really set yourself up for success. Believe that you're going to be successful from day one. For those that haven't had the experience of being acquired, what was it? And obviously with a, a name like Google, like can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like to realize that there was some interest and then those discussions and what eventually led to uh, the acquisition? Yeah, that was an exciting time. Very unexpected. Couldn't have imagined it in a million years. I mean, we didn't really set out to get acquired by Google. We just wanted to create value and hope to stay, keep our lights on, you know, to have a job. But yeah, Google came knocking and I remember we got we got an email from someone from M&A at Google 
saying, you guys are doing a great job. Are you interested in getting acquired and having that conversation? And my co-founder and I were just completely like, what, what is going on? I remember we went and shared it with our investors and they were like, you know, you need to be careful in these conversations. You never know where they could go or if people are just like fishing for information, but no, Google was, the folks at Google were, were incredible and very transparent really early on about their intentions and, and the intentions for a company. The due diligence process was very lengthy. That was probably the hardest period of getting acquired. Um, I think it took like six to eight months or something along those lines. And you can't tell everyone on your team. It's, you know, and you also have to keep the company going to the right. And, but you're also distracted by all this stuff going on with the due diligence. So it was a hard process to manage. I think that was the hardest part for me as a founder to manage that, but it all worked out and it happened and we got acquired and I'm very, very grateful. It was the perfect home for FameBit. We integrated into YouTube, which was perfect. Obviously we're serving YouTubers with FameBit. So I'm very grateful, very grateful for those learnings and that opportunity. So now you're someone with just has a hard time saying no, right? You've got a strong entrepreneurial mindset, but now you go to work at Google <laughs> and now you're an employee. So I'm wondering how your mindset shifts and what those few years at, at Google were like. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely different. You go from someone who's making all the decisions about your company, someone who has this small family to now having a much bigger team, essentially, you're working with a lot of different departments, you have to figure out your focus, like where you're going to integrate first, there's challenges. And then obviously, as a founder, I think letting go is a big challenge of your baby, your company and trusting other people and their ideas, letting other people in is, is a was definitely a challenge, I think, initially, but yeah, it it worked out and it was great. And, and FameBit saw a lot of growth while while we were there, which which was a great experience. And you kind of get more of a playbook. It's different. I mean, building a startup and getting a company off the ground, finding product market fit is a little bit different than setting a company up for scale and scaling. And we were able to do that. And I'm happy I acquired that knowledge because I think that's something that I'm able to tap into. Again, now with my second acquisition, there's sort of more of a playbook then the first time you kind of know what you want in terms of how you want to operate. Sure. Were there some interesting takeaways from that experience in terms of the structure of a company that big and, and just organization and, and you know how efficiently they, they do or do not run their departments? I'm wondering if there were some learnings there as well. Yeah, I think definitely learnings in terms of figuring out like where to focus to optimize for scale. I think for us, the biggest thing was plugging into... Google's massive sales org, which which helped us scale very quickly. And those are definitely the learnings that we're taking from here, like, you know, how we were packaged in with the existing services and those types of learnings has been very helpful. So you're at Google now and you're starting to have conversations about a podcasting company or service. I'm curious about early days, those conversations, like who were you having them with and what was prompting that? I don't think it was necessarily conversations. I think it was just something within me that I was seeing the space unfolding. I was seeing a lot of creators from YouTube, that are big YouTubers transitioning over into podcasting. 
starting podcasts, creating entirely different content than they were doing on their YouTube channel, kind of going deeper and more behind the scenes and letting themselves be more raw and different than they were being on their YouTube channel, which, you know, vlogs I didn't consider very polished, but they're so much more polished than a podcast. I mean, like, I feel like creators go a lot more deeper. And, but also with that, at the time, my co-founder and I, because I think we had that insight into what we saw happen with video, we saw a lot of the same problems unfolding that we saw in the early day of the video influencer and that majority of the podcast creators didn't have a way to monetize. It was, they were sort of being treated more as ad slots in their podcast than personalities or influencers. And, and obviously there's like the narrative style content in podcasting that was emerging at the time, but there was also personality, more Twitch type of style content that we saw was going to be huge and and very different. And yeah, and there was no infrastructure for podcasters to be in the driver's seat, to be able to find brands to collaborate with, to control how they're priced themselves and to actually monetize. So yeah, we decided to jump on the bandwagon and leverage a lot of that expertise and, and build something for podcasters given our our sort of insights. And so with that, that was the birth of Podcorn. What was some of, how much of what you thought was going to, what it was going to be ended up happening as you started to roll out the platform and you started to have people sign up? Yeah, I think, you know, we leverage a lot of our learnings in terms of like, who do you go after first? Kind of like the chicken or the egg problem, whether it's like the brands or creators. So we had more of a playbook on how to acquire users. We were very mindful also of like partnerships and how important they were for us at FameBit. And we also are leveraging partners here with hosting providers. I mean, Squadcast obviously is a partner, but also like Buzzsprout, Podomatic, RSS. Those partnerships have been very instrumental for us in our growth. So I think leveraging a lot of that expertise about how to grow our user base has been helpful. Yeah, we built a wait list actually before we even launched of podcasters. So we made sure that we had sort of the inventory for brands and ensured that, you know, podcasters wanted to to collaborate and work with brands. And what was the the initial result from the podcasters that were working with the platform? Did it feel like they were having access to a service or making connections that otherwise there was nothing at the time that was able to, to make that for them? Yeah, I think we had immediate product market fit, which was just Incredible. I almost, I think like looking back, I didn't think it would happen that quickly. I thought it would be harder, but I mean, I think it goes to show how lacking podcasters were for monetization, even more so than YouTube creators or Instagrammers, you know, most podcasters that were using traditional advertising were making pennies per listener hour, the ones that we talked to. So yeah, I mean, podcasters who have even a thousand or 5,000 downloads were able to get hired on the platform. And, and yeah, we opened it up to see how they price themselves, what is worth their time. So that was an incredible learning for us as well. And yeah, very surprised by, by the collaborations. And, And also I think, you know, we're in a time where a lot of brands now understand the value of influencer marketing. They understand of the power of creators. And so it, from even a, getting brands on board, it was a lot easier this time around because brands already are somewhat educated on the value of influencers. 
Do you think the problem was that brands weren't seeing uh, podcasters as part of that influencer world? Because I naturally, I think with Twitch, maybe it's because of the video component, and with YouTube, like there is a personality that you come it is recording these videos on a regular basis, and and people are are establishing that connection with them. And I wonder, is it just because it's audio that it's a, more of a challenge for someone to develop that influencer role? Yeah, I don't think actually it's more of a challenge to develop the influencer role. I think there is incredible personalities and, you know, kind of like going back to the example of On Purpose with Jay Shetty, like he is the personality of the show. He is sort of the the influencer or the celebrity behind it. And, you know, I'm subscribing to his message. And I think with podcasting, it really takes authenticity and the relationship with the host and the listener to a deeper level, even than than video does, because you are able to go deeper and more raw and behind the scenes and you have more time with the listener. And, and I like to say like, no one listens to a podcast by accident. You kind of seek it out and you seek out the person and, and the personality. And a lot of people are turning to podcasts for sort of self-help or information and education. I think I was reading during the pandemic, there's some research that came out that people trust hosts of podcasts more for news related information these days than traditional sources of information, which is, which is really interesting. So I think it goes to speak to the power of the medium, but going back to your question of why I think it was so hard or why the influencer narrative wasn't really explored. I think there was no infrastructure for direct collaborations first and foremost. I think it was taken from the radio space with a very radio ad slot mentality of content versus being about the, the exact content that you're being immersed in and being part of the conversation, less so of an ad, but more part of a discussion. And there was no infrastructure for that. I mean, if you wanted to, like, if I wanted to collaborate with you and I found you, let's say on Spotify or somewhere else, like your contact information isn't even really there. It, maybe I can find you on Instagram and maybe you'll have like collaborate with me or something like that. But it was very hard for brands to even discover podcasters. The space is very fragmented. There's no sort of centralized platform where where you can find them and collaborate. And so, yeah, there, there was an opportunity for that. But also the type of content that brands were creating was very different. It was more so ads. It wasn't interview segments, product reviews how-tos, topical discussions, and coming from the YouTube space and seeing the value of being immersed in creator content and being part of that conversation, I had that insight that it would be powerful if if done in podcasting, even to a higher level than, than video. How successfully has that happened from what you've seen that podcasters have been able to rethink how they're creating content? Because when you give that example and you describe it that way, I think of like an unboxing video on YouTube, which is a thing, right? <laughs> and so what is the equivalent for that experience? Because you don't have the visual component in podcasting. But to your point, pushing podcast hosts to really think outside the box of not only how they can add value to their audience, but also because of relationships with sponsors bring in a sponsor that will also add value to the audience, but it, it becomes a you know a symbiotic relationship. And I'm just curious about new models or anything that you've seen that's interesting for the podcasting space. 
Yeah, that's that's a great question. I mean, for instance, like I think with a topical discussion, you're able to talk in depth about something relating to the brand's industry or the brand's product. Like for instance, Tesla is not a customer of ours, but like if you want to promote Tesla and you talk about the importance of going electric, right? And it's more of an educational episode around that importance and then weaving in the brand more naturally and part of the conversation that makes a lot of sense. We have this company that I talking about, Lumen, which is, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they help you hack your metabolism, their startup, they have a device for that. And it's kind of more of a complicated product. And they were able to partner with podcasters who are experts at fasting or experts that strictly talk about metabolism and making the most out of your metabolism or health and wellness experts. And they did a lot of topical discussions and interviews where the podcasters were able to get more journalistic and conversational and ask deeper questions. And the co-founder or the founder of the company was able to, to talk about like the science behind it and how it works. And so I think especially if brands have more expensive products or products that require more education, you can get experts within the field to really talk about it in a way that you can't if you're just a random ad, right? They bring unique insights and industry expertise. And that's, I think, the type of content. It's not really about, it's really taking what podcasters are already doing, whether it is talking about crypto or talking about parenting or health and fitness or fasting, taking what it is that they're already doing, partnering with them with brands who are in their industry, who can leverage their expertise and their connections with their listeners and fans and create something unique. And obviously for podcasters, it's incredibly beneficial because not only do are they able to charge more for this type of content than they can for a traditional ad, they're able to get the products from the brands, test them out, be more sort of influencers and guides and shepherds for their listeners. They can get unique discounts and coupon codes for their community that are very unique for them. And but also build long-term relationships, you know, whether it's like down the line, co-creating a, a product line with a brand or or doing something together that's more of a brand ambassadorship than than just sort of space for an ad. It's so I'm so glad you said that because this is, you know, we, it's podcasting. We're talking about podcasters that so we get to get geek out as much as we want here <laughs> because this is like what I really love to think about. I always say, if you just make it a, just a very quick relationship, like I'm going to read the ad and then I'm going to go to the next thing. Your listener can see that you're just like paying the bills and it's just like, oh, it's, you can tell that he's just reading that because he has to read because there's an ad on his show. But if you say, hey, like I just launched, just have a partnership with Patreon, right? They just came on for a couple of months on Podcast Chunkies. So I got really excited because I remember when I set up my Patreon account in 2014. So I started talking about that in my episode. And it's just building a story around why this relationship with the sponsor means so much to me. And as a listener, you're just like, oh yeah, I can see how he's being considerate about the relationship he's building. And and also being intentional about your content and being specific because everyone wants to have like a general crypto podcast or a general marketing podcast. And marketers don't like that. Our sponsor companies don't like that because it's like, uh, you know, how are you going to separate out? They're just going to go for the most popular show in that category at that point, right? Yeah. Just as in, and I'm just wondering what this is 
triggering for you because I created a second show in the vertical farming industry. And I, I was able to get a sponsor to pay for a season of the show before I even launched because it's an industry which is getting a lot of funding. It's super niche. And I just gave them you know, a pretty high number based on what they pay for like booths. They pay $20,000 a booth. So half of that to sponsor the show. And they didn't blink an eye. And really like it was an aha moment because I'm just like the product market fit, kind of what you're speaking to and also sponsor podcast fit. And I, and I, I think it's just something that we need to be talking about more as, as podcast hosts. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think we're going to move more into podcasters really being sought after as celebrities and influencers with real expertise. And, and I think it goes to show the power of the expertise and that it doesn't matter also the size of the creator that you could have sort of a thousand niche listeners who really believe in your expertise on a particular topic and they want information in that area. And so they're way more likely to explore a brand that is aligned with your purpose and your message. And that makes sense. And therefore way more likely to, you know, buy something that you endorse yourself because they trust you and believe in you. And I think with such great power that podcasters have all to the point that you make comes great with responsibility in the sense of you have to be mindful. You can't just accept any deal just to monetize. You have to think about whether that is something that aligns with your voice. You shouldn't do interviews if you're not an interviewer, right? I mean, just because a brand wants interviews, not everybody has that skill set. But also it doesn't have to be 100% of a perfect fit. You know, if let's say it's a snack company and you your podcast is not about food at all, but you do eat, you know, and it is something that you you like and it is a brand that you like and you consume on a regular basis, then that makes sense too. And I think it's about finding how a brand relationship makes sense, whether it is through passion, whether it's because if it's your message and your topical expertise, or whether it is something that your listeners, you know, would, would be interested in hearing about and, and making the most of that. I love your passion for this topic, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) And it sounds like a lot of it came from the experience of seeing the creators on YouTube and what you're doing with FameBit. And now you've carried that enthusiasm into like the creation of Podcorn. So do you find yourself like, you know, being asked to, to be sort of the cheerleader for creators, you know, because you've, you've demonstrated how important it was and to do it right at YouTube. And now through Podcorn, you're enabling these platforms and it feels like it's something that's, that's passion. That's, you know, a passionate topic for you. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think I am very much a champion for creators and even, so it's funny that you say that because even in, in the company, I think I really kind of bucket myself to be more on the creator side, like I'm all things creators and really strive to constantly figure out and work through like not only, you know, how we're going to get more liquidity and more deals, more of the right deals for the uh, podcasters within our platform, but also like helping them how to pitch themselves and how to ensure that they are getting hired and, and help their chances and, and help them put their best foot forward. I, I, I think I, yeah, I love the creator space. I'm, I'm a big fan and I, I believe in the power of the right match and what it can do. And I think it's, it's very much two-sided relationships that benefit both brands. I mean, going back to the Lumen example, Lumen saw a 300% return 
through those really targeted collaborations. And those weren't with really big creators. Those were kind of like long and mid-tail experts. So it's very powerful. And yeah, I I love the creator space. <laughs> <laughs> That's well, we're glad to have you as a champion. So for Podcorn and maybe just a little primer for folks that may have heard of it, not have tried it out, or maybe tried once and then maybe it wasn't a fit for them. How would you describe the marketplace that you've created and some of the functionality and features of it? Yeah. So we describe ourselves not sort of as an agency or network, but as a tech platform. Podcasters can think of us as an Airbnb for podcast sponsorships where they can come and go as they see fit. We don't believe in contracts or long-term obligations. You can browse opportunities. It's completely free to sign up. You can send your own pitches to brands, price yourself how you see fit, and collaborate with brands on your terms. We have very secure workrooms. We have pricing transparency. So, you know, podcasters always know exactly what they're going to get paid. We require brands to pay money upfront before even getting to hire and collaborate with a podcaster that we hold the money securely in escrow throughout the duration of the entire campaign. So we make sure that podcasters get paid. We also pay podcasters on a flat fee basis per sponsorship. So, you know, regardless of how it performs, you know, you're going to get paid, which is really helpful because I think that also opens up the discussion of how do we change how creators are valued that they're not just this CPM ad spot, but there are actual like creators, writers, producers who who are coming up with this incredible ideation for brands and, and how they can be valued on other factors than just how many downloads they get. Very helpful. Thank you. And so when sponsors look at the platform, how much information do they see about a podcast? They can net, they can probably see something about downloads or something about the performance as well. I think you're connecting Chartable or some other tracking metrics. No, so we connect directly to hosting providers like Buzzsprout, Podomatic, RSS. So we pull the podcast data from them. Brands have also filtrations that they're able to do once they get proposals based on like category, geography, listenership, also certain keywords. So they're able to filter down their proposals and and also like based on the type of content they want, whether it's like interviews or host reads or product reviews and, and whatnot. So yeah, but at the end of the day, it's both the power of the brands and, and the podcasters to be able to select each other and negotiate. You know, even when a podcaster prices themselves, the brand has the ability to negotiate the fee and or ask a question of how they're pricing themselves and why. And yeah, and make that decision of whether or not they want to work together on their own without a middleman. And that conversation happens through the platform? Yes. What do you have as, as the future in terms of enhancements you'd like to add, functionality? One of the things, obviously, as an entrepreneur, my marketing brain always starts kicking in. So <laughs> I'm wondering if there's an opportunity to tell more of a story around the creator themselves, not just related to their show, but I think in what, what we try to do at our agency, when, when we start shows for clients, like you show the benefit of your platform, not just your one show and the one downloads. And I'm wondering if you've given thought about how to make that more accessible. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we encourage even right now, like podcasters to include information about their other social media channels, you know, whether they do vodcasts on YouTube and they want to include that in their pricing or to even like provide a more holistic overview of their listenership or their like whole profile of their audience, even if it is on Instagram or another platform to be able to pull that in. So that's important. But yeah, we have 
lots of tools in the works for creators and brands. I can't discuss too much. One thing that we are working on that we're really excited about unveiling soon is a tool around attribution and helping brands track actual results on a per podcaster basis without the need for coupon codes, which is really exciting for us to be able to deliver personality driven content. Also, we're bringing also like a performance tool into into the product that will allow podcasters also to do more of kind of like affiliate stuff if they want to. And also with brands, because we've gotten a lot of requests about that, but also to your point about creating more of like a holistic view of a podcaster as an influencer. We're also working on podcast profiles, which will enable podcasters to kind of have more of a page about them and their craft and, and pull in more of a holistic view of them, kind of like a LinkedIn profile. Yeah. And, and you might be able to leverage what some of the work the Podchaser is doing because they've got the whole podcaster taxonomy group that met and decided what all these different roles are. So if everyone had their stuff updated on, on Podchaser, you could quickly do a link to their profile and see these are all the shows they host. These are all the places they've been. And it starts to build up some sort of score, for lack of a better term, of just how visible and how engaged they are in the specific industry. And I think a metric like that strengthens the appearance for a sponsor because they're like, well, this person may have a new show, but it's clear that they have experience in this industry. It's clear you know, that they know what they're talking about and they want to be aligned with that person. Interesting. Yeah. So just bringing it full circle, I'm curious with all these things that you have in motion, like what you do to keep sane and keep your mental health in balance <laughs> through all these ups and downs. Yeah, clearly listening to self-help podcasts is one. But yeah, I think just what drives me is that I'm really passionate about the space. I think it's really exciting that I get to sort of like help see different brands and all different verticals grow. So it's always exciting. It's always different. I'm always sort of touching different verticals, different advertisers, different creators. And I mean, I think, yeah, it's just become more of a, like my work is more of my lifestyle. And that's really, I guess, maybe that's not the healthiest way to approach it, but it works for me is I'm happy as long as I'm really passionate about what it is that I'm doing professionally. And I think that seeps into happiness and in, in other areas of my life. So yeah, I think my part of my balance is ensuring that I'm loving what I'm working on and that I'm constantly being challenged and that I am in a growth mindset. What are some of those self-help podcasts that you like? Self-help? Well, that's definitely Jay Shetty. Um, there's a bunch others. Let me see here what I'm subscribed to. It's like the Happiness Podcast. I'm also into Sword and Scale. I, I like True Crime as well. And a bunch of the True Crime Podcasts mm, in the Dark. Definitely the Happiness Podcast. That sounds good. How I Built This. I also I also love Founder Stories. I love kind of hearing founders go through their journey and how they got there. It's that's also like very therapeutic and self helpful to me. So definitely those types of podcasts. A couple of questions as we wrap up, what's something you've changed your mind about recently? Mm, that's interesting. I don't know. How about you? I'm curious. <laughs> well, diet wise, my girlfriend and I are going to try keto. So just opening yourself up to changing your mind about what you think your relationship to food is and 
I mean, I'm Latino, so like rice and beans and like meat. <laughs> so like we're pescatarian now and then keto is even a, a little more strict. But when you read, we're reading Mark Sisson's book, The 21 Day Keto Reset. And the way your body can change if you take care of it and how it can prepare you for a, a long life, a healthy long life is really fascinating. And it's not for everyone because that's why most people don't do it because it's not easy. So that's something I've been think, I've been thinking about. That's interesting. Well, I don't know if this should make it to, to the episode, but I think like one thing I definitely changed my mind about recently is like juicing. I think during COVID, I really wanted to go. I was like really worried about eating poorly once I'm completely cooking for myself. So I got a juicer for the first time in my life and I was really adamant about juicing and then ended up getting a terrible chemical burn on my tongue that took me like five months to heal. It was very painful. And so wow. there's a price to pay for, for too much of a good thing. So I've definitely changed my mind on, on juicing. Even, I mean, I wasn't living on just juice, but I was having <laughs> just like a juice a day with food, which apparently is damaging. That's fascinating. Now we'll, we'll have people running to Google and the <laughs> uh, tongue burn, <laughs> juicing, seeing what pops up. Yeah. I mean, I, I was at a point where I literally got every test done in the book. I thought I had like autoimmune disease. Like I didn't know what was going on. It was very painful. And then after a lot of research and tests, I, I came to realize that it was that or my doctor helped me realize. But I've since since then been very moderately juicing. <laughs> you're, you're like listening to juicing podcasts. <laughs> No, I should have. Maybe that would have helped me. I would have figured out what I'm doing wrong. I went into it like too hardcore. What's uh, the most misunderstood thing about you? I don't know. I think it's just being a female in tech. I think it's less than it used to be. But, you know, like when I started Famebit with my co-founder, I mean, obviously we didn't take these investors on, but there was very, you know, there was times when we were in meetings where investors would automatically just look at my co-founder, who's a male, not me. And I w wouldn't, I didn't feel like I had a seat at the table and I wasn't treated always as a co-founder. I mean, thankfully I got very supportive investors and obviously these were people that we brought on board and that's changed. But I think for me, that was the, the most misunderstood thing about me is that, that I was maybe less valuable than my male co-founder to start. And I think just a misconception also in the space is that a lot of people feel like you have to have a tech background or, you have to be a programmer or you have to be a technical person in order to start a company and you don't. So yeah, I think, I think that's also a misconception in the space in general. Well, Agnes, thank you so much for this wide ranging conversation. Um, I love the fact that I never know where they're going to end up. And so <laughs> <laughs> I think we covered a, a pretty good variety of topics here and I love how inspiring your story is and especially from the beginning where you know you were you were in law school and then you decided to make a big decision and speaking as someone with you know as an immigrant myself and coming from an immigrant family that's not a decision that's looked upon favorably in in that environment so having the courage to do that but also doing it in a way where, where almost there was no plan b and i've told this story before in my show like i cashed out my 401k one, uh, twice right? <laughs> that's why i said so the first time i was like no i don't want to I don't want to know that if I fail, I can have a, a backup plan because I think you really need that drive. You need to learn that early as an entrepreneur to realize like there is no other way. I have to make this work. And that's what, what keeps you going. And it's obvious that that's what's kept you motivated. You clearly have um, an inclination 
for trying new things and, you know, just realizing if, if it's something you don't know that you can learn it. And I think that's a really admirable trait and it's inspiring to see. And I'm just kudos for your, your journey so far and specifically for women and in tech and, uh, you know, even little girls who are aspiring to do something in, in tech to understand that, you, you know, you don't have to have the technical skills, but also to be able to speak up for yourself is not a bad thing. You know, it's not something that should be frowned upon. So, so many takeaways here that are, are really inspiring. So I, I want to thank you for inspiring me and inspiring my audience today. No, thank you. It's It's been such a pleasure. It's so exciting to go back with myself and just relive the journey. Um, it's really fun. So for folks who want to get connected with you or learn more about Podcorn, where's the best place to send them? So... Podcorn FM, uh, find us on Twitter or podcorn.com to to sign up. And yeah, and feel free to hit us up and support up Podcorn or yeah, I'm just Agnes at Podcorn if you have any questions direct. Thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks again to Agnes for coming on the show. Always appreciated when guests take time out of their busy schedules to share their story with you, my listener. I really appreciate it. Full show notes available at podcastjunkies.com forward slash 273. Intro outro music composed by Cedar and Soil. Cedarsoil.com for his list of music. Don't forget to check out our sponsor, Focusrite, and their awesome line of gear, specifically the Scarlet 2i2 Pro. Visit podcastjunkies.com forward slash Focusrite. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Sign up for a free podcast brainstorm at fullcast.co forward slash chat 15. Tune in next week for a conversation that I've been looking forward to for probably many years now. Podcast OG, Jason DiFilippo, co-host of the Grumpy Old Geeks, and that's just one of his accolades. He's worked on several high-profile shows like the Jordan Harbinger Show and the Tim Ferriss Show, and this is really a great trip down podcasting memory lane and hearing his perspective on how podcasting has grown over the years. If you made it this far, you're no doubt looking for this week's retention hashtag let's go with podcorn agnes and tag us at podcast underscore junkies and agnes at podcorn fm thanks for all you do to support the show talk to you next week